Well, um, let's move through Matthew 19 today. We're going to go through 12 or so verses and uh, look forward to continuing the Lord's discussion about the gospel and the kingdom of God. This is a, a unique text that affords us the opportunity to hear the, the deep passions of, of the Lord for his kingdom, ever-expanding kingdom. So let's look at Matthew 19, beginning in the first couple of verses, and we'll pause and we'll continue on uh, as we move forward in time. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds follow him, and he healed them there. Now, if you know the history at the point in time where Jesus is in this gospel, you'll know that Jesus has moved away from the Mount of Transfiguration, and as he was doing so, he was making his move towards Jerusalem, and over the number of weeks that it would take for him to move through those regions, ministering and sharing, speaking about the kingdom of God, he knew ultimately he would end up in the last week of his life, the week of Holy Week in Jerusalem, where he would be crucified for the sins of the world. And Jesus is certainly doing so with real intentionality. He's engaging people along the way. And you have these little snapshots, if you will, about what the kingdom of God will be like one day when it's physical, when there will be no sickness and no disease, there will be no weeping, no crying, no sin. You have these moments, and this is one of those. And Matthew gives us an insight to the account as it's happening uh, just beyond the Jordan River as he's going through the region of Judea on his way to Jerusalem. By the way, in, in May of 2019, I'm heading over that way with a group of people, and I'd love to invite you to join us as we discover God's truths in the Holy Land. If you're interested, you can go and find more information at mbchurch.com. And if it's just not where you can go, I get that. One day in the future, the Lord himself is going to reign supreme in Jerusalem, and he's going to invite us to be there with him. And so you'll see Jerusalem. It's just a matter of will you see it before he comes or after his coming again. But at any rate, Jesus is there. Now, Matthew tells us this narrative and the details of the narrative because they're important. The region of Judea, Herod is the Tetrarch. It would be the, the equivalent of us as having a governor. So in that area, Herod is the leader. And Herod, as you know, uh, once was married, uh, had a brother who was married to his current wife. His brother's name was Philip, and he had a wife named Herodias, and Herod actually moved in such a way so that Philip and Herodias would be divorced, and she would become Herod's wife. And there was a man of God, a prophet of God, whose name was John, who pointed that out and called it what it was. It was an illegitimate marriage. It, it was brought about by sin. And, of course, this really brought some antagonism from Herod to John, and he had him imprisoned, only later to have his wife ask for the head of John to be severed from his body and to be brought to her on a platter, which it did. So now Matthew tells us that Jesus has, is leaving the region of the, Gent, uh, the Gentiles, moving towards Jerusalem, and as he's doing so, he's going through that area. And there are the Pharisees in that area with him and they're going to propose a question which I think has little to do with their interest in the subject and everything to do with them tricking Jesus to say something about the divorce that ought to be or that has been with Herod it's a trap and Jesus is not going to fall for it 
He's going to engage the question, but he's going to engage it in a different way. He's going to actually bring them back to the beginning, to Genesis. And he's going to point them to the words of God himself in that day. So begin with me in verse 3 as we continue. The Pharisees came up to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I love the fact that when Jesus was asked a difficult question, he referred them right back to the scriptures. And of course they should have read and should have known what God said about this, but instead they're quoting Moses, misquoting him in fact. And Jesus does what you and I should be doing. Jesus takes them back to the word of God. Have you not read? So there's a lot of opinions that are being cast out there, a lot of things that are posted online, and a lot of questions that might come up, and they want to know what your opinion is. Can I just say, people could care less about my opinion. What they need from me is the Word of God. Could I not just open God's Word and, and reveal the treasury of truth to them, and it make a greater impact in their life? Sure, and the same for you. We ought to be daily engaged in the Word of God, know the Word of God, let it be like a wellspring in us so when people are posing questions or asking about issues, we can say, here's what God said about it, or here's the character of God. I think Jesus relays a great example for us to live our life by pointing them back to the Word of God. Then verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Well, this is a passage that obviously has uh, a lot of interest from us. It's uh, one that I'm recognizing might be somewhat uh, approached with timidity. Some of you have had the experience of divorce, and the wounds are very real. The pain is real. Some of you, time has transpired, but the woundedness is still there. I've not met a single person that has gone through divorce that ever, ever discounts it. They recognize the cataclysmic effect that it has not only on them, but it has on others. It waves through with pain and suffering. And I recognize that today. Some of you are still dealing with that. Some of you are in the midst of that. Some of you are contemplating that. Now, knowing that, I'm going to be as careful as I can not to affect those scars or those wounds. There might be some things that I say that you say, ooh, that's a little close or that's a little hurtful. I can tell you, as God is my witness, it's not my intention at all. The wound might be there, the pain may be there, and by me even speaking the word, it might rise up in you. But I pray that God's salve, God's healing, God's restoration will be known to you today. And the Holy Spirit will come and minister and stir among you as we deal with this subject. Now, 
I don't think Jesus is dealing with the subject of marriage and divorce as much as he is the kingdom of God. And so I want us to focus there. We're going to do it as we're talking about marriage and the separation that occurs in some people. But we're going to do it with the intent of the gospel that Jesus has as it's laid out for us in Matthew. Now let me mention this. When we're thinking about marriage and divorce or divorce, think about the gospel and think about Genesis. That's what Jesus did. They pose a question about divorce, and Jesus refers them back to Genesis, and Jesus refers them to the gospel. And I mention that because chapter 18 of Matthew comes before chapter 19. You say, Randy, you've been going to school all those years in studying God's Word to be a teacher of God's Word, and the best you can come up with is chapter 19 comes after chapter 18? Yeah. And let me tell you why that's important, because chapter 18 is just filled with the heart of the gospel. It ends with the gospel account for us who have received God's love and forgiveness, and it demands of us what we have received from God in his gospel we must give to other people. With the liberal way that God has forgiven us and loved us, we must love others and forgive others with the same liberal way. We ought not have a limit to it. We ought not have a boundary of it. We ought to just flourish in the midst of the gospel that is ours in Jesus Christ. What we have received from God, we ought to freely give it to others in the power of the Spirit of God. So chapter 18, coming before chapter 19, is a big deal. Because he's saying, don't withhold love and forgiveness from anybody. In chapter 19, the Pharisees are saying, maybe we ought to withhold love and forgiveness. And maybe we ought to figure out, when can we divorce? You see how opposite that is from the heart of Jesus in this subject? Jesus is not looking for a way for somebody to get out of a marriage and divorce. Jesus is looking to empower us with the gospel so that when others say, man, that thing's broken, there ain't no way that's going to hold together. It's God's love and mercy and grace that floods the individual and they stick with it regardless of what other people say. This is the way that Jesus is thinking here about Genesis and the gospel. Love and forgiveness are not optional. And they're not optional in your household either. I've come to realize that too often people strive to find the right person to marry. And I would agree that's important, finding the right person to marry. But you know what God's most interested in? Your marriage making you rightly righteous. That's what God's going to use marriage to do. It's going to be for His glory. All things are for His glory. And God is going to use marriage in your life or my life, and He's going to use it in a way that we become more righteous. He's going to use the opportunities where the flesh might rise up and resist and separate, but the nature of the Spirit rises up in the midst of those times to help us to live rightly in expression of love and mercy and grace. My marriage vastly improved when I stopped trying to make Kay into the perfect wife that I once envisioned a perfect wife to be. How ridiculous is that? Who am I to make her to be something that she's not? My marriage increased greatly when I came to humble myself before God and before her and other people and say, God, this isn't about her. This is about me. This is about you working in my heart. God, let your work in my heart be evident to her. Let me be humble to her and serve her and love her and be merciful and gracious to her even when I may not want to. Help me in that. When I became 
when I came to the point of recognizing that God was using my marriage to sharpen, to reshape, to transform me by the work of the Word and the Holy Spirit and the relationship, the covenant relationship that Kay and I have, when I began to learn what God was doing through her to me, I learned it was good. And I pressed towards that. I want to ask you to do the same thing. To press towards your mate knowing that God is going to give you vast lessons as you humble yourself and press towards your mate and press towards God. I've discovered through brokenness and marital hardship that God wanted to use my marriage to shape me away from self-centeredness and towards Christ-centeredness. And the lessons continue today. Kay's an accelerated learner. I'm a remedial learner. God continues to teach that to me over and over and over when families experience difficulty and crisis and have real problems and struggles, or as I say sometimes, we just get into a funk, it's there that God's grace, His gospel work really takes off. And what He's doing in the midst of those struggles is He's whittling away the self-centeredness and whittling away the pride and the arrogance. And he's prompting us with His Word and Spirit to learn to be humble and to be given in forgiveness and love unconditionally and what God is doing in the midst of the joys of celebrations of marriage and the happy times and the times when things are going well you know what he's doing he's shaping us with his grace he's conditioning our hearts in the midst of that celebration as well causing us to draw nearer to himself when Kay forgives me when she's encouraging to me when she's building me up and accepting me I learn about God what I mean by that is Kay is made in the image of God. Kay has the nature of God in Christ Jesus by His Spirit. Kay has been conditioned with the Word of God. And when she uses those characteristics to me in the relationship, I come to know more about God. And as I come to know Him more, I love Him more deeply. And my heart is surrendered to Him all the more. Is God using you in your relationships like that? As a husband to a wife, as a wife to a husband, as parents to kids, kids to parents, as friend to friend, as church member to church member, is God using you in that? I pray that he is. It's no wonder that Satan comes against marriage so definitively, making marriage difficult. One of the great, great quotes of my son in their first year of marriage is one time he said simply, Dad, marriage is hard. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, it's not like the TV shows, is it? It's not like you envision. It's hard. It's chronic halitosis. It's, it's waking up grumpy and then getting yourself up. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> oh, that was going to cost me. <laughs> love and mercy, baby. Love and mercy. Give it, give it, give it. <laughs> Marriage is difficult, and it's in the midst of the difficulties that God is helping us to exercise grace and love and forgiveness, pressing towards with unconditional love. Can I just remind you that there was a time in our life where we were the rebellious sinners? We could care less about God and the things of God. We worked in opposition to Him. The Bible says we were enemies of His, and yet God in His unconditional love came to us and rescued us from that brokenness and brought us into a relationship, a sacrificial relationship, and all the sacrifice was on Him. Can I remind us of that truth? 
And in that great gospel, that good news that God came to rescue us, we live out the expression of that. When our spouse is not very easy to get along with, that's the way we ought to be. Gracious and kind and forgiving and reaching out to them, accepting them, longing them back, pulling the prodigal back into the household because that's the gospel. Our marriages are meant to be that expression. Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred Marriage, which I really encourage all families to read, says this, if happiness is our primary goal, we'll get a divorce as soon as happiness seems to wane. If receiving love is our primary goal, we'll dump our spouse as soon as they seem to be less attentive. If we marry for the glory of God, thank you, Lord Jesus, for that truth. If we marry for the glory of God to model his love and commitment to our children and to reveal his witness to the world, divorce makes no sense. Your marriage is not for your happiness. Your marriage is for your holiness and unto the glory of God. That means when things are rocky and things are difficult, God is using your marriage in the midst of all that brokenness to shape you more like His Son who was not just resisted but attacked over and over again humiliated and shamed, mocked and murdered. It's in that for us that we live out the expressions of grace to our spouse. In the Christian home, every person has a mission of lifting up the others to be the care of God in the life of that individual. Simply put, our marriages are meant to reveal the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus literally calls himself the groom and his church the bride. And our marriage is meant to be lived in such a way that others on the outside would look in and say, that's what the gospel is like. That's what genuine, unconditional love is like. That's what true forgiveness is like and mercy and grace. That's what that's like. Our marriages are meant to communicate that. So when the Pharisees bring up the notion of divorce, they're obvious. They're obviously of hard heart. They're not given to this way of the gospel. They're, they're not surrendered to the way of Christ. They're looking for the way out. Now, what God wants is for us to live as the first man and woman in the garden. The first one to be married. And the first one to be married, they were the only two on earth to be married to. So God views it that way for us. Jesus refers them back to Genesis as if to say, you need to live your life with your spouse as if your spouse is the only one on the planet. Live your life as one flesh. Not as two people trying to figure out how to be happy. Live your life as one flesh. That's the reason why adultery is so devastating because it makes the one flesh broken. You bring somebody else's flesh, flesh into the relationship. So he's saying, be a one flesh, fully committed, engaged individual. If we were going to define marriage biblically, it would be this. Marriage is, God, is the God-made, one flesh union of a man and woman in a sacred, mutual, lifelong covenant relationship. I believe that's a good working definition that God has given us in the Scripture. As I've been to the last few weddings that I've been to, I've made a mental note to be sure and communicate the word sacred in the ceremonies that I lead. Because this isn't just a relationship. This is a set-apart, holy-unto-God relationship. It is sacred. And it's a covenant between God and the couple and the couple with one another and God. 
and it's meant to be lifelong. So this is a unique relationship that God himself set apart. And what God puts together, no one should be tearing it apart. It's sacred. So maybe you're struggling right now in your relationships. Maybe right now as husband and wife, you're wondering, is it worth it? Maybe you've even talked about divorce. Maybe you've even thrown it out there that you're going to do it. Maybe you're already talking to the attorney. Maybe you're wanting to, as long as you can squirrel enough money away to get it done. I want you to hear, your relationship is not the main problem. Your heart is the main problem. It's your hard-heartedness. You say, well, you don't know my spouse. You don't know what I deal with. All I know is this, is that the gospel has transformed us as enemies into the family of God, as friends of God. God has made sinners into saints. And he says, now, Randy, don't you hold back any way that love, that forgiveness, that mercy and grace that I poured into you. Give it to everybody. And the training ground is going to be your marriage. If you can't forgive the one that you pledged before God to love, you're not going to be able to love anybody because your heart is hard. You say, well, the situation is hard. Yes, yes. But I've never known God to not triumph over a situation. I've never met any situation that God says, oh, that one's too big for me. You are already empowered by the Holy Spirit of the living God to live out this gospel. If your heart is not hard to that, you will exercise in that gospel work. I say that and know that there are seasons in my own life that I didn't flourish in that. Opportunities that I have given into our relationship that have been very strained. Opportunities for Kay to pull back because I, I was hurting her in my selfishness, in my arrogance. And I could say the same, opportunities for me to get offended and hurt and pull back. But God's grace and God's gospel triumphs even in that. Oh, may the Lord find us faithful to that truth. So the Pharisees start talking about what Moses said about divorce. Jesus refers them back to what God said about marriage, which trumps what they're attempting to do, pull away from unity and bring separation, and, and, and just ignore the fact that this relationship between a husband and woman is meant to communicate the gospel. So they frame up this question. And of course, they're framing it up wrong. Even misquoting Moses, Moses did not give a command for divorce. In fact, what he was recognizing is that the hard-hearted people were leaving their wives. And Moses said, hey, in your hard-hearted sinfulness, I need, to, I need to give some boundaries to this. I need to bring some regulation to this because you're doing things that, are, that not even the, the pagans around us do. So even the fact that the Pharisees are bringing up the issue reveals their own hard-heartedness. Rather than seeking the power of God to remain together, they're seeking where can we have power to separate even what God has joined together. O'Donnell writes it this way, marriage is not the problem. Hard-hearted people are the problem now, then, now, and always. Take away the disease of hard-heartedness and you take away all divorce laws, divorce attorneys, and divorce settlements. So marriage, even in its great difficulties and struggles, gives us opportunity to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. You ought to imagine your spouse as a full-length mirror. Now, it's going to take imagination if you're like me. I'm six foot, and my wife is 4'11 and a half. 
So maybe a little bit distorted image of the mirror there. But you ought to view your spouse as the mirror. And when you're looking into the mirror, you know what you're going to see a reflection of? Your sin. It's the same way for your kids. Have you ever noticed as parents, the things that really aggravate you the most about your kids are the things that you struggle with yourself? You ever notice the things that you really gripe on them about are the things that you're griping about yourself? So when Kay and I have a differing of opinion, I'm looking at her, I'm seeing a mirror, and you know what I'm seeing? I'm seeing self-centeredness, my self-centeredness. I'm seeing arrogance or pride. I'm seeing a harshness. I'm revealing all those things. And, and what we're doing in this exchange is she is showing me that. Not that she's the sinner, I'm the sinner, and it's being evident in the midst of my relationship with her. And the question is, what will I do in those moments? Will I allow God's working of His Holy Spirit to see that sin and to confess that sin and to walk away from that sin, which is repentance, and press into the work of the Spirit of God? Or will I stand and be hard-hearted? I regret many a time in my life that I just chose to stand in hard-heartedness and not live out the expression of the gospel. To take my stand and hold my ground. I regret those days I didn't illuminate well the gospel of Jesus. I'm grateful to God that his work of spirit is softening my heart. And I'm close, still distant, but I'm close to where Kay is in her heart. She's always had a sweet disposition. Quick to forgive, quick to love, quick to let the Holy Spirit work in her. I'm grateful for that. We have a choice, don't we, when it comes to hard-heartedness? We can choose to stay where we are, or we can choose to allow the Spirit of God to soften us. And as we become softened, we are more pliable to His work. And as we're pliable to His work, here's what he says in Ephesians 4, we can take off anger, and we can take off bitterness and wrath and clamor with all the malice. We can take that off, and we can put on tenderheartedness and kindness and forgiveness that's the power that God has given us to do that. So when both the husband and wife do that, and I'm praying that some of you will do that today, both of you come to a point of taking off the things of the flesh and putting on the things of Christ and displaying the gospel to your mate, I'm praying you do that and you'll walk away amazingly triumphant and glorious unto Christ. This might be a fresh start for some of you today to have that talk have that moment of pressing in to the way of Christ. For some of you, it'll be one of you and not your spouse. And although the marriage is going to have its difficulties because of that, you can experience the flourishing work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in the midst of those kind of hardships, you can grow in Him. And perseverance and endurance and character and all that produces a great hope for you You'll be shaped more like Jesus. And ultimately, this life is a movement towards that which is eternal. My marriage to Kay is 32 years old, and it's going to come to an end when one of us dies. It will not go into heaven with us. My marriage to my wife is simply a picture of what is ultimately eternal in heaven, which is Jesus' relationship with his church. 
So I need to be exercising in my relationship with my heart and helping my wife exercise in the relationship with her heart so that that day in eternity is really a great day. Let your marriage be that. We ought not take hardness of heart lightly. It's a big deal. My doctor was seated on that little roll-around stool that they sit on in the waiting, I mean, in the examining room. I knew my blood pressure had been high, and it was really high that day. I tried to give way to, it's just being nervous in here, because I don't like going to the doctor very much. But he sat down on that little rolling stool, and he said, hey, Randy, we're going to have to do something. You can't stay at the pressure rate that you're at. It will cause damage to your heart. It will cause damage to your organs. We're going to have to do something. And he begins to talk about medicine options. Now, having been with friends who have been on hypertensive medicines, I decided, don't want to do that if I don't have to. So I asked him, give me another option. Let me try something else. And he said what every doctor says. You know what the two words are, right? Diet and exercise. So he goes and he prints off this DASH diet. It's a diet specifically to reduce hypertension. And it basically means you get rid of every food that you really, really love. <laughs> so when Kay and I are eating and we're eating and it's really enjoyable, we're really liking it, we're mm, 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 making all kinds of noise, we're like, this is not on the list, is it? Yeah, we eat all the le leafy things and all the colored veggies and fruits that are healthy and good for you and legumes and nuts and lean meats and drink mostly water. and So I go back to him, and I ask him, so how's it looking? He said, oh man, whatever you're doing, keep on doing it. My blood pressure ranges somewhere around 116 to 120, over 68 to 70. It's back where it ought to be in my teen years. My BMI is perfect. All my cholesterol numbers came back down. And he, his words came true. And there might be a time in the future that I have to have some medicine. If you're on medicine, it's fine. But diet and exercise make a big deal to the physical condition of our heart. And so it is with our spiritual conditioning of our heart. Diet and exercise, that's what God prescribes. There's not a medicine, there's not a sermon I can give you that will transform your heart. It's diet and exercise, a daily diet of the Word of God and prayer and worship unto God. And exercise, a stringent spiritual disciplined life, serving God and serving other people. Diet and exercise spiritually will condition your heart to be pliable before God and pliable to your mate and others. You ought not take it for granted that you have to live with an unhealthy heart. How about conditioning your heart? Letting God bring transformation to you. And practice that which you're doing, exercising in it regularly. The best place for you to start your exercise spiritually is with your family. Your husband, your wife, exercise in those ways. Spiritually hard-hearted people have a diet of sin and self, and they fail to exercise in God's truth. I've come to the conclusion that if you and I are not aggressive towards a healthy spiritual heart, we will divert to a spiritually unhealthy heart. Because we live in a culture that will divert us if we don't aggressively seek out the things that are spiritual. If you're not up every day intentionally, 
guarding and conditioning your heart, the world will condition it for you. All right, there's a whole lot of things that I'd like to say but don't have the time to do it. So let me just give you some notables. I'm just going to brush across these rather than diving down. And the first is this, that you and I ought to guard ourselves from breaking the one flesh union with our spouse. So guard yourself. That is, careful what your thoughts are. Careful about the thoughts that, that entertain you, the conversations that you have, the clicks that you make, the posts that you're engaged to read in careful with that. In fact, the Bible says this, take every thought captive to obey. Now, notice in that passage, he didn't say take every word captive to obey. He said every thought. I'm fairly guarded in the house about what I say. You're not going to hear me say things that I'll be embarrassed about saying. I'm not going to be curt openly much to my wife I'm not going to be demeaning to her. I'm not going to call her names. But the inner dialogue is where Jesus says, Randy, it's not your mouth that you're going to have to take captive. It's your thoughts, that inner dialogue that's going. The reason why that's important is just because you have a thought doesn't mean it's your thought. It could be from the enemy. That's his first move against us. That's the reason why they're like fiery darts that come into our mind. And those thoughts, if we think about them, that dialogue that begins can be very detrimental in the way I have an attitude towards her or against her or stand in my selfishness. So he's saying, be careful. Guard this one flesh life by Taking captive the thoughts, and I, I believe that that's an excellent resource for us in our marriages and in our families, in our workplace, and in church life. Secondly, adultery is not the unpardonable sin. I recognize that among the place today, there are people who have committed the sin of adultery. And although that is a grievous sin, and it is a impactful, hurtful, to the core sin, devastating it is not the unpardonable sin i can tell you with all certainty that god can overcome adultery case in point one of his favored prophets was hosea and god called hosea to go marry a prostitute whose name was gomer bring her home show her unconditional love and grace and hosea does only one day she doesn't come home and in the evening she doesn't return. Soon, Hosea goes out looking for her, and he finds her on the auction block as a prostitute again. Devastated, God calls out to him and says to Hosea, go purchase your wife and bring her home. Show her unconditional love, mercy, grace, forgiveness. It's a beautiful picture of what the gospel is doing. Now, God ultimately wanted that image of Hosea showing unconditional love to his adulterous wife to show his unconditional love for a spiritually adulterous nation of Israel. What I'm here to say is the unpardonable sin is not adultery. God can and will forgive. And with that in mind comes this next notable. Divorce is not required when your spouse is unfaithful to you and God. It's not required. In fact, 
Moses gave that as an opportunity if one committed adultery because the one flesh has been broken. Moses said, you can give that person a certificate of divorce. But you remember what Jesus said? It wasn't that way from the beginning. It was because of the hard-hearted people that that was brought in. There is never a more clear image of the gospel to me when I'm in conversation with a husband and wife and it's been found that one of them has been adulterous. And the one who has been sinned against with deep hurt and trauma lets the grace triumph that and forgives. I walk away from those conversations and those experiences giving glory to Christ because only he could do that. Only he could give that kind of love to the person's heart that it might flow even when it's been so broken. I encourage us to be those kind of people. To be pure, to be holy, to be right, to be true. But when sinned against, to be forgiving. Another notable is that we cannot have too high a view of marriage. The disciples when they came to know what Jesus was describing as marriage, they sort of assumed to themselves, which I'll read in a minute, uh, maybe it's better that we just don't get married. They recognized that Jesus had a high view of marriage, and in that view, they asked questions like, maybe this is an impossible standard for us to meet, but it's not impossible. Now think for a minute about what God is, what he's requiring. He says, before marriage, live your life purely. Be sexually pure. In your marriage, live your life with fidelity. And in the midst of marriage, live your life with a lifelong, surrendered, gospel-centered relationship. And when the disciples hear all this and they recognize this, they're saying, oh, maybe it's just better that we don't get married. And then it comes to a really interesting point of view because Jesus is going to lift beyond marriage the kingdom of God. And he's going to say that marriage is not the greatest call. Serving the kingdom of God, that's the greatest call. So have a high view of marriage, but have even a higher view of the call of the kingdom of God. What he's calling us to look at the last few verses, verses 10 through 12. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, in the first century, a eunuch was obviously a single individual who's not sexually active for obvious reasons. And that period of time as well, somebody could actually be forced to be made a eunuch by someone who wanted to be served without the risk of there being any sexual impropriety. So eunuchs were made. And the third was that somebody might determine to be that way for the kingdom of God and by the giftedness of the call of God. Now, Jesus is not saying some people who are really given to the kingdom of God are going to mutilate them, their flesh. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying there is they're going to determine to be abstinent. They're not going to be given in marriage. They're determined to give themselves fully to God and exercise in the kingdom of God. 
And where the disciples are saying, wow, this high, lofty view of marriage you have, maybe nobody should get married. Jesus is, oh, there's some who will receive that, but not everybody. In the end, it comes down to this. Whether you're married or whether you're single, the kingdom of God is superior to all things. Whether you're married or single, the gospel ought to be lived out in word and expression in all ways. Married, single, we must exercise this gospel. Now, Kay and I got married 32 years ago. And that was one of the greatest days of my life, no doubt. Probably the greatest saved my relationship with Jesus Christ in 1973 coming about. We were not called to singleness. That was not what God was calling us to, to serve the kingdom of God as single. In fact, I dare say, and I don't want to hear any amen, I dare say I am a better minister because of her. Go ahead. <laughs> and I'm still growing in my ministry because of her. So we are better together as a husband and wife to serve the kingdom of God. And when one of us dies, the marriage is over. We are not going to be given to marriage in heaven. The kingdom of God will be here. Some of you have a gift that God is giving to you, and you're receiving it, and it's singleness. Now, our culture looks down on single people, wondering what's wrong. I'm going to tell you, Jesus not only did not look down on singleness, Jesus lifted it as the high calling of the kingdom. Now, listen, if you're around single people, and you feel like you ought to be Cupid and be matchmaker to them. In the name of Jesus, stop that. Go to the person and have a dialogue with them and ask them, are you single for the purpose of the kingdom of God? And they may tell you no. It's just that they have not discovered the person to be one flesh with. Then pray with them and encourage them about that. And yeah, you might even introduce them to somebody who you've prayed about. But they may say to you, my heart is given to the kingdom of God. I'm like the Apostle Paul right now. What I'm singularly focused on is Jesus and this glorious gospel. And I want it to flourish in every aspect of my life. And I don't want my life to be, under, uh, to be, to be divided emotionally or physically or otherwise. I want my life to be singular. Then bless them and encourage them. And walk away with a whisper of thank you God for giving such a call to such a person as that. So which are you? You're either single or you're married. Which one are you? And it's the kingdom of God flourishing in those two places. Now, if you're not careful and you're here, you'll look for power to get out of this marriage when all the while God is saying, I've empowered you to not just stay in the marriage, but for it to flourish live out the expression of the gospel. And if you're over here, you might be thinking, God, how can I ever get married without even giving it a thought that maybe God has given you the high call of his kingdom and chosen that for you. It's not for everybody, but for those who receive it, receive it and let the gospel flourish in you. Let's pray together. In this moment, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be softened and made pliable by the work of your Spirit 
so that we might hear your voice and respond to you accordingly. And we pray, Lord, that you would find obedience in us, that we would not just be agreeable, but seek out the ways to walk in this truth, that Jesus might be glorified and his kingdom might flourish and our lives be transformed. We pray it to the glory of Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.